Good morning, everyone. My name is Don Earhart. I'm one of the pastors here. Welcome this morning. I hope you've had a great weekend. Hasn't it been beautiful outside? It's just been gorgeous. Can you, can you, yes, good, yay, yay, God. <laughs> can you believe it's October? What happened? We're getting older. It's painful. Well, uh, in June, um, Mike, well, that was July. In July, Mike Andrus spoke. And at the end of those four weeks, <laughs> I had to follow that. And, uh, and so it's kind of intimidating to do that, maybe more than intimidating. And then, of course, last week, um, kind of an important week in the history of our church family. And, uh, and I'm really excited about Adam and, and Jenny coming. And, and then I, these dates were set up way beforehand. How does this happen? Oh. But I'm excited to be here. I think God's, God has a word for us this morning, and, uh, and, and, and so it's going to be a good morning. Um, we're back in the book of Mark. We're going to be in chapter 6. If you want to turn there or if you want to go in the Version Bible app and go to Mark 6, uh, we, that's where we will start. I want to take you back four weeks ago where we left off so we can kind of put the pieces together here. Four weeks ago when we were in chapter 5, the end of it, several things happened. So uh, Jesus is sought out by Jairus, who's a synagogue ruler, and Jairus' 12-year-old daughter is dying. And so Jairus comes and he tracks Jesus down and he asks Jesus to go with him back to his house so that he can lay his hands on his daughter and heal his daughter. And as they're heading back to Jairus' house, there's this woman who has an issue of blood who has this thought, if I could just touch Jesus' cloak, I would be healed of this issue of blood that I have. And so as they're heading to this big group, a crowd of people heading to Jairus' house, this woman comes up behind Jesus and touches him, and she is instantly healed. And if you'll remember back to the story, there are all sorts of things happening behind the scenes with all of that, and they eventually end up at Jairus' house where the, the daughter, the 12-year-old daughter, is already dead, and Jesus lays uh, his hands upon her and raises her from the dead. It was an incredible story, and it was a story of these two people who had faith that Jesus could take the impossible and turn it into a miracle. And this morning, we're going to contrast that with a story that is the exact opposite. It's a group of people who didn't see Jesus as the one who could turn an impossible situation around. And so, uh, and so, that's where we're headed this morning, and, and uh, I want to take you back before we get into that, though, to, to the beginning of the book of Mark and then to the end of the book of Mark, because this morning we're going we're to turn the corner and head a different direction. The very first verse of the book of Mark, if you'll remember, Mark starts out and he says this. He says, in the beginning, the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So he makes this proclamation There's this beginning, and this is the beginning of the good news, this great news, this gospel of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the Son of God. And if I could take you now to the last two verses of the book of Mark, Mark 16, uh, verses 19 and 20, here's how Mark concludes this book, this gospel. He says this, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, and and he says, after the Lord Jesus had spoken to them. He was taken up into heaven, and he sat at the right hand of God. Then the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. 
This morning we begin to turn the corner toward that last verse where the disciples move from learners to actually witnesses. So we follow Jesus through this book of Mark at this point, and we've seen, we've seen John the Baptist. We have seen how he proclaimed that Jesus was this Messiah, the Son of God. We've seen Jesus, with this incredible authority, um, proclaim that, that he has come to bring the good news of Jesus. That, and he has shown that he has the authority of the Messiah, the Son of God. And we've observed the 12 disciples and the others who have followed Jesus fumble and fumble and fumble the ball over and over and over again. But they are growing in their understanding. And now we're going to see that all this culminates in a path that's a much bigger picture. It's a path to something greater. It's a path to something better. It's a path that led from Jesus telling others about the kingdom of God that now leads to the disciples being the torchbearers of this good news, witnesses of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, to get us going, you know I have to tell some sort of a story, right? i gotta tell, I got to tell some personal stories here. How many of you are parents? Parents. Good. Lots and lots and lots of us. I have personally and continue to personally find that parenting is rather challenging. Anyone else? Somehow, I believe that my kids would sit around my feet and beg me for wisdom. I thought they would automatically, by living with Anne and I, become Christ followers, that it just would magically happen and that God would do this miracle and they would observe us and see Jesus and go, oh, yes, yes, we know that you model Jesus clearly and we have decided to follow him because we see Jesus in you. And yet uh, that, well, let's just say it hasn't been that simple. I actually wish that I could go back and start all over parenting. I don't know about you, if you've ever felt that. Why is it that God sets it up that he puts us or allows us to go into parenting when we know absolutely nothing, and when we start to just figure it out, he takes us out of parenting? Why? Why would God set it up like that? It, it just doesn't make sense to me. Now, I, I didn't grow up uh, with the blessing of being part of a, a great community like this. And I didn't grow up with a a clear model of how to be a parent who followed Jesus. My parents came to faith uh, after I had had graduated from college. And so after I had become a Christ follower and and, uh, and Ann and I had had been married, I, I had these grandiose ideas of how things would be different for us, for our family. And I want to comically, and I'll use the word comically, tell you a couple stories this morning that I thought of to kind of just give you some insight into how successful I have been as a parent. And by the way, I really am proud of my kids, and I am so thankful for them. Um, And I've done the best not to throw them under the bus in these stories. (laughs) I have left out several stories where it just wouldn't have been wise. So here we go. I vividly remember coming up with this idea that I was going to take one of our 10-year-old daughters on a date. And, uh, and so Ann dressed her all up, and I got dressed up and got some flowers, and I came to the front door, knocked on the door to get her, and the door opens, and there's my little daughter all dressed up, 
And I thought she would jump into my arms and we'd have this great time, but here's what happened. She looked at me and she started crying in terror. She, I guess, had never seen me dressed up before or something. I, <laughs> eventually, we, we uh, did go out and have dinner and, uh, and we had a great night. And we ended up, uh, I worked for a church at that time in, on the north side of Indianapolis, and we ended up, I took her to, uh, it, I think it was a Saturday night, we, we ended up in the dark sanctuary like this at night without any lights on, and I unlocked it, and we went in, and we sat on the stage and just kind of overlooked the pew. And I, I don't know if you've had a chance to ever come in one of these places at night, but it's kind of like a holy place that, that, that is just special. So we sat and we talked and we prayed and we had a good conversation and it was just one of those moments that I as a dad just cherished. I'll never forget it. Well, when I ask this daughter today if she remembers this night, guess what her answer is? I kind of remember that. I think, I think I remember that. And I'm, what? How can you, how can you forgive her? How could you forget that night? It was It was awesome. I remember coming up with this great idea with one of our daughters that the summer before she left for college, I had this wisdom that that she needed to gain. And so uh, I set up 10 dates, 10 different times. We'd go out for lunch or dinner or coffee, and each one of those 10 days throughout the whole summer before she left, I was going to give her this piece of wisdom that was so important for her to know. She needed this piece before she left and went out on her own. And so we met. And we went through the 10, and uh, I, I began to pick up that she wasn't that interested in my wisdom uh, as, we were, as we were going along. And, and today, I'm pretty sure that if I asked her, could you just give me one of the 10? One. I'm pretty sure she couldn't. I, I'm pretty sure. I remember going on a prayer walk with one of my kids in our neighborhood. And uh, we, we walked and we passed neighbor's house and we would pray for the neighbor and then we'd pray for the kids and, and then we started praying for this child's friends and we prayed for my friends, we prayed for our family. I would pray, this child would pray and it went back and forth for like an hour and we walked and prayed. And it was just an awesome time together. So guess what this child can't remember ever happened? <laughs> I'm beginning to wonder if I hallucinated the whole thing. (laughs) Family devotions. Multiple times in multiple ways, it was a dreadful process. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Experimentation after experimentation. Eventually, we abandoned the whole thing, (laughs) and we came up with just this simple dinner approach. And I really am trying to be a good dad, and and, um, what I'm trying to to tell you is that helping my kids stay strong in their walk with the Lord has proven to be way more challenging and difficult and complicated than I I ever imagined. In the midst of our attempts to model Jesus to our kids, to encourage and help them to be strong in their relationship with Jesus, um, here's what I learned. If I could just boil it down. Here it is. Familiarity with Jesus does not equal a relationship with Jesus. Familiarity with Jesus does not equal a relationship with Jesus. Our kids eventually have to follow Jesus in their own will. 
Our kids need to own their individual relationship with Jesus. They have to make Jesus their Lord and Savior. Familiarity with Jesus doesn't equal relationship with Jesus. So, teens in the room, work with us. You're killing us. Just make Jesus your Lord and Savior. Just do it. Just listen to our advice. We have so much to offer. You would, you would, you would help us if you just work with us. In all seriousness, I don't want to just pick up, pick on our kids. Um, parents, adults, we got some issues too. Uh, many of us go through the motions of the church thing. Uh, the Bible study thing, the Joy FM thing, <laughs> whatever the thing is. But oftentimes, we lack a vibrant relationship with Jesus, myself, myself included. And I've been around teens long enough to know that some of our kids actually turn away from Jesus because of what they, they have seen in us. And that's just so heartbreaking. And again, I, I'm included in this. But my real, real point here isn't to blast parents or to blast teens. My real point is just to make this clear, that familiarity with Jesus does not equal a relationship with Jesus. It doesn't equal surrendering yourself to Jesus. It doesn't equal laying your life down at the feet of Jesus. Familiarity with Jesus doesn't mean faith in Jesus, as we are going to see vividly this morning in our text. So if you turn with me to Mark uh, chapter 6, verse 1, we're going to read the first six verses here to to get going. Here we go. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him? that he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't his, this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and his own house as a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of of faith. So Jesus leaves Jairus's house where he had just raised Jairus's 12-year-old daughter from the dead. And he takes his 12 disciples and he heads to his hometown where he had grown up. He'd spent 28 years approximately of his life there. These people had spent more time with Jesus than anyone else on the earth. And this is Jesus' second Recorded trip to his hometown. The first one we don't even find in the book of Mark. You can find it in, in the book of Luke, Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 16. And that trip didn't end so well. It was early in Jesus' ministry. He's teaching on the Sabbath in a synagogue. And his hometown got so angry with him that they grab him and they take him up to a top, the top of a hill and they're going to throw him off a cliff to kill him. Really successful day of ministry. And... Uh, and somehow he walks through them, and, and, and it's, it's not the time. 
Now, Nazareth was an interesting town. Uh, we believe that it was a, a small town, two to 300 people at the very most. Very, very small town. The town was so insignificant that the Old Testament, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, and all the rabbinic writings of that time never once mention this town, Nazareth. Never once. It appears to be a nowhere town full of nobodies. And maybe that's why in John, in the first chapter of John, um, when Nathaniel is told, hey, you need to come meet this Jesus of Nazareth, he says, he says this. Do you remember? Nazareth? Has anything good ever come out of Nazareth? <laughs> that's, that's his response. And just like his first visit, Jesus comes back to, to this town, this hometown, and he begins to teach in the synagogue on the Sabbath. And we are told that many who heard him were amazed. That's the, the New International Version. Uh, that's the word that, that comes up. In the ESV, the word is astonished. But there's a lot more going on in the original Greek word that, that gets translated amazed or astonished. The, the original word has a, a very strong negative connotation to it. Uh, the, the literal interpretation would be to strike a blow. So their amazement is actually, actually an anger like they want to hit him for what he's saying. They are astonished, but they want to hit him to, to strike a blow. It's a very negative word. And then these, these people in Nazareth begin to bat around these questions. Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Joseph Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And we're told that they, they took offense with Jesus. They're actually offended by what he is doing and saying. And, and evidently, they were familiar with Jesus' miracles. Now, Mark has worked us through a whole myriad of them, and, and it doesn't seem to be surprising. That's not their issue, the miracles. They didn't deny any of these things. They actually seem to acknowledge the miracles. They simply can't reconcile what Jesus has done with who they think he is or is not. It's as if these people of his hometown who grew up among him are actually saying, this is the Christ, the Messiah, this one we've known all our lives. He's the Son of God. We know who he is. Are you kidding? No way. And then in verse 3, their comments seem to come to a head in, in, in several ways. They say, isn't this the carpenter? In other words, he's a blue-collar person. He's a commoner. He works with his hands. His occupation isn't impressive. And then they get a little more abrasive, and they say this. Isn't this the son of Mary? Now, there's more going on here than you would just pick up on reading. Why would, why would they call him the son of Mary? Well, it's very possible that Joseph was dead at this time, but it's also very likely that they were jabbing at Jesus. It was a cheap shot at Jesus' birth. It was a vague reference to their belief that Jesus was an illegitimate child. A scandal to a sinful mother who would dare to say that this son was born from a virgin birth. It's like they're saying, if anyone knows who you really are, we do. You're nothing special. You're just one of us nobodies from a nowhere town. And to top it off, your birth wasn't even legitimate. You are no Messiah. And then verse 3, it says they took offense at him. And this, this 
word offense, it's, it's bigger than what we capture in English. It's, it's, um, it's the same word that we get the word scandal from. So they're saying, this is scandalous. You get the idea of what's going on now in their hearts and in their minds and in their questions. And then Jesus makes this noteworthy and famous response to these people. His hometown, his childhood friends, his relatives, and even his own household. Here's what he says. Only in, a home, in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. And then, then we're told this. It's a crazy statement that Jesus, Mark actually says, could not do any miracles there except heal a few sick people. Isn't that crazy? How could the omnipotent Son of God be bound by the unbelief of the people of Nazareth? There was something about this blatant unbelief of his hometown people that caused Jesus to restrain his miracle power. He, was, he restrained his, his ability to communicate the kingdom of God. And we're going we're gonna to delve into that just a little. And, and imagine what Jesus longed to do among these people that he had to have relationship with and that he had to, to care for. Their unbelief actually limited God's miraculous power. And then Mark gives us a glimpse into the thoughts and the heart of Jesus. And here's what verse 6 tells us. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. Now this word amaze is again another, in the original language, another different word. It's not the same amazement that the Nazareth people had. This word is actually a a word that, that has compassion to it. His amazement is a word of, are you kidding me? How dare you? You don't see it? I have so much to offer. It's a, it's a word of compassion and, and, wow, I can't believe that this is your response. What amazes God about humanity is not its sinfulness, its propensity for evil, but what amazes Jesus is the hardness of heart and the unwillingness of people to believe in him. Jesus is amazed. The people of Nazareth only see a carpenter. They only see the son of Mary, one of the village children who grew up and had come back to visit. If only God were less ordinary and more unique, then they would believe. The servant image of the son of a God doesn't garner the real credibility that they believe this true Messiah should bring. And Jesus didn't do what he wanted to do. He he didn't do what he could have done. Their unbelief was powerful in their midst. It actually thwarted the ability to experience God's goodness. It seems that the humanity wanted something other than what God wanted to give humanity. But the greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but it's the unwillingness of the human heart to accept God who actually humbles himself as a human, the son of Mary, a blue-collar carpenter, and ultimately humbles himself by hanging on the cross, crucified by the very people who he created. Knowing that his sacrifice would bring the freedom that no human could ever work in his own strength. 
It's amazing love. It's amazing power. But bottom line, familiarity with Jesus doesn't equal a relationship with Jesus. Now remember, all this has been happening while the 12 disciples have been there either sitting or standing in the midst of watching and observing all of this. Why, why would Jesus drag them there to this place of unbelief? Well, let's continue on in the, in the text, and I think we can begin to pick up on where Jesus is going with all of this. So uh, the second half of verse 6 through verse 13. Then Jesus went around teaching from village to village. Calling the twelve to him, he sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any, any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. And then I love these last two verses. The summation of what happens. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons. And they anointed many sick people with oil. And they healed them. So Jesus leaves Nazareth. And and he goes again village to village teaching. And he may have been disappointed with the people of his hometown, but he didn't let that deter them from fulfilling the the will of his father. So he continues to teach in these other villages, which brings us to to why I think Jesus brought the disciples along with him this whole time. So for the first time, Jesus begins to shift the responsibility from his own to the disciples. And I want to just take you back a couple chapters If we could go back to chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, somehow you miss it where this is all heading and going. But if I take you back, we were given a hint by Mark where this all ultimately was going to go. Verses 14 and 15, chapter 3. Here's what it says. He, Jesus, appointed 12, designating them apostles that they might be with him and that he might, here it is, send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. We've already been told where this is ultimately heading with these disciples. And, and so Jesus summons them, he sends them, and he gives them his authority, which seems so counterintuitive. If you were to look and to study just at the disciples' thoughts, actions, and words over these last five chapters, you wouldn't really see them as a group that was ready for a mission. But that wasn't how Jesus saw it, was it? Which should give us some hope. And as we follow them through, these disciples through the end of this book, their ignorance, their missteps, their fumbles continue. And yet Jesus, early on, calls them out and sends them out to share his good news. And he actually gives them his authority on this first trial mission as they go out two by two. He, he didn't just send them out, but he sent them out and he gave them authority over evil or unclean spirits. They were to act as an extension of the ministry of setting people free as we have watched and as they have watched uh, Jesus do in person throughout this, this whole book of Mark. And it must have been quite remarkable for them. Wouldn't you like to have been there and, and seen how Jesus gave them the authority? Did he just say, you have the authority, go. Or did he go through, well, we don't know what happened. I would have loved to have seen how that happened. My guess it was so simple that they didn't even know that really anything had happened until they stepped out in faith. That would be my guess. 
And then Jesus set some parameters for what they're to bring with their travel and what they're not to bring. And he, he gives them some directions on how to be grateful guests in the homes that they, they are received in. And, and he gives them some more directions on how to interact if they're not received. And then I love the very end where, where Mark summarizes it all. And he summarizes it with three statements. First, as these disciples go out two by two, they preached that the people should repent. Now, repent is kind of a funny word. I mean, imagine if you're a teacher and you go to school tomorrow and, and a kid acts up and you just say, repent. I mean, they, they would have absolutely no idea what <laughs> that means. It's, a, it's kind of a Bible word. But if I could just break it down simply, it's this. They were calling people to quit running away from God and to turn around and to run toward God. They were calling the people that quit going away from, from God. This is great news. Turn around and run toward God. That was their message, the message of repentance. That was the first thing they did. And then Mark tells us that the second thing they did is, did is they drove out many demons. Can you imagine it? They're, they're out in these villages, and they're bumping into these people who have these issues, just like Jesus did, and they begin to cast out these evil spirits. And then the third thing they did is they anointed many people, many sick people, with oil, and they healed them. As they anointed and prayed over these people, they were actually healed. Must have been amazing. And we see, what we see now is these disciples doing in the villages what Jesus had modeled for them. Their first mission with his authority was effective as they went out representing Jesus and they multiplied his efforts. Six separate two-by-two mission teams. It was a really successful trip. It had to be amazing. So, after reading these stories, my, my question is always this. That's great, Lord. That's great, Jesus. What do I do with this? How does this, how does this fit? Well, for me, as I was looking at this, I saw some patterns emerge that I think are interesting. And, and so I want to just put them up for you. Here's, here's the first pattern. We have Jairus and we have this woman with the issue of blood. And and they sought Jesus out. They came after Jesus because they actually believed that Jesus had authority to deal with their, their issues, their challenges. And Jesus responded by healing and, and actually resurrecting Jairus' daughter. And then we come to, in this story, these people from Nazareth, the Nazarites. And, and they... Uh, they question Jesus' authority. Their response is much different. They actually were offended by Jesus, and, and Jesus' response for them was no miracles, except for a few. It's almost like Mark is saying, except for a few little healings, no big deal. I'm like, give me some, give me some of those no big deal healings. Uh, and, and so the response there is, is very different. And then we see... This third group, the disciples. And the disciples, they, they follow Jesus, which means they were with Jesus, right? And, and they obey Jesus, and Jesus actually gives them his authority. And what happens? What's the response? They have this fruitful ministry. Not only are they a witness to, to 
Jesus, but the ministry is fruitful. It's, it's bearing fruit. It's growing. People are, are seeing miracles. And so guess who the fourth group is? Any, any guesses? <laughs> it's us. It's you and me. You see, where this story eventually goes is we are called to be the witnesses. And, and if you just follow the pattern, you see that Jesus is setting something up here. He's setting up how things work or how things don't work. And, and where we're at personally will affect how that happens. And the thing that I love, though, that gives me hope, that gives me hope in this, is these disciples were goofballs. And yet, and yet, that didn't bother Jesus. Does that give you hope? I mean, we're just like it. We're goofballs too. And yet, Jesus' plan is to take and to use us. Do you see the pattern? But remember, familiarity with Jesus. Familiarity with Jesus doesn't mean a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, where do we go with all this? I think for most of us, God, our heart is we want to be used, but we're either terrified, we don't know what to say, we don't know where to go. And, and yet, God, uh, we're just like those disciples. Lord, help us, empower us. Help us to be people of faith, not unbelief. Help us to be people with a vibrant relationship with you and not familiarity with you. God, help us to be part of what you're doing in this world to help others to see you. And Lord, we, in our own strength, are going to fumble the ball. You already know that. But God, we want to be used by you. And so take us now and use us. In Jesus' name, amen.